the sound of corporate success. You know what that looks like, a bright, open concept office space where a group of motivated employees smile as they talk over a boardroom table. Or maybe it's two people shaking hands, clearly satisfied with the deal they've just brokered. Or how about someone standing with her hands on her hips and a slight smile on her lips, savoring the deep satisfaction of having cracked a difficult market. This is Music to Inspire. To assure you that you are on the right path and that your business is destined for great things. After all, today's episode of The Startup Cycle is all about scaling your entrepreneurial venture. Because chances are good that sooner or later, you're probably going to need to grow. Whether that means hiring employees, expanding your customer base, investing in technology, or finding new markets. We've got stories and advice from people who've done it all successfully. Stay tuned. One of the challenges when you're scaling is finding the right balance. Do you grow the leadership team first, or how do you build a diverse workforce? And how far into the future should you be casting your gaze? Those are all questions Eva Wong has had to contend with. Eva is the co-founder and chief operating officer of BorrowWell, a non-profit Canadian company with a single focus, helping people make better decisions about credit. BorrowWell uses technology to guide people to the right financial products to meet their needs, with an end goal of getting people out of debt while also improving their credit ratings. BorrowWell has now served more than 1 million Canadians, but that growth didn't happen overnight. For more on her own scaling journey, I'm joined by Eva Wong, who is a commerce grad and a member of the Smith School of Business Advisory Board. Hello, Eva. Hello. What inspired you to found BorrowWell? So it was really my business partner and co-founder, Andrew Graham, who came up with the idea of BorrowWell. And the mission has always been the same, but the initial business problem was slightly different. So our uh, target was that we wanted to help people make better decisions about credit. And we recognized that consumers were in a lot of debt. And so the original premise was that we wanted to offer a convenient loan online that people could get and pay off their credit card debt at a lower interest rate on a fixed time frame and get out of debt sooner. How big was that founding team? You mentioned a co-founder. Yes. So initially, there were four of us on the co-founding team and one initial employee. Okay. And since then, now where are you? So today, we're at 70 employees, which is really exciting. Okay. Scaling in action. That's right. In those early days, how conscious were you of your plans to grow? Thinking back, I don't know that I was that conscious. I think in the early days, you're so focused on executing what's ahead of you thinking about the day, the week. And I think if you're lucky, maybe thinking a couple of weeks out. So I don't think that we spent a ton of time thinking about sort of the, the longer term, meaning sort of years away. So how did that growth happen then? I mean, I think we picked a problem that we knew was very large. So that was one thing. And we knew that this was going to be the work of many years. And I think we always kept in, in our minds what the end goal was and what the vision was and, and how we were going to help people. But I, I would say that a lot of the time was spent in the, the day-to-day thinking about you know how we are actually going to do this. And I think that's actually important for scaling. I think um, 
you need to be able to solve the problems at hand if you want to solve the problems of the future. And so I do think looking at uh, the problems that we were facing, the problems that our users were facing, and trying to pick one thing that we could solve for them, focus on that, execute on that, and then sort of get better and better over time was helpful instead of, you know, thinking too far ahead. That sounds reasonable. And the <laughs> thing, though, so as you did start to grow, yes. how did you start to make plans? How did you start to think, okay, wait a second, what are we doing? Yeah, so I do think that as the company has scaled, the time frame over which you plan does get longer and longer. And I think that makes sense. So we we did at, um, I think, a relatively early stage, like start at least putting together some sort of formal planning process, at least for coordination. And even if they weren't sort of long term, uh, like too far out, I think initially we did them in four month increments, we would at least put together a plan for the next four months. So we used a system called OKRs, which a lot of startups use, a lot of bigger companies use as well. It stands for objectives and key results. And if any of the listeners are interested, there's a ton of free online resources that Google makes available. And those are what we use in order to like figure things out. And that was really helpful for us just to align against like what is it that we want to accomplish over the next four months so that we could be hyper focused and then we could all be coordinated and understand, you know, what the dependencies were between the different team members as the team grew beyond the size where everyone was sitting around a single table and always knew what everyone else was doing. How did you figure out when to scale up and what was the sequencing of actions? Yeah, I mean, I think that as a venture-backed company, we went out to raise money from investors and we needed to go out with a plan. So I think the good thing is that uh, that process sort of forced us to think about, well, what is it that we're going to do with this money if we're successful at raising it? So whenever we did have the funds to like fund the growth, we actually did have a plan in, in place in terms of what are the next employees that we would want to hire and what are those metrics that we need to hit. So I do think it, was, it wasn't without a, a plan that we, uh, that we scaled and that we grew. So then thinking about that growth, what were the biggest challenges? Or were there maybe more than one? I don't know. But what were the biggest challenges that you then had to face as you, as you grew? I think one of the biggest challenges that we face, which I think is like very normal in any other company that is wanting to grow is going to face as well, is that there are always more good things that you could do as a company than the company has time to do. And if you aren't coordinated, I think it does come back to the OKRs that I spoke about before in terms of what are the metrics that you want to hit and the time frame in which you want to hit them. And then what are the best possible activities, not just things that are good that we're going to execute against? And what does that mean in terms of the good things that we're actually going to decide not to do so that we can focus on executing against the best possible things and that we're all in agreement on those, I think is really important. Okay. And so how did you overcome those challenges? What if there was something that you weren't all in agreement about or something that wasn't going according to plan? Yeah, I do think there needs to be room for a lot of debate because you have a lot of passionate people. We care a lot about diversity. And so we want people to bring different opinions to the table and challenge the maybe status quo or the, you know, the direction that uh, that one person thinks that you want to go in. So I do think that the ability to have really respectful conversations, data-driven conversations, user-driven conversations was always helpful. From the beginning, I know lots of companies say they're data-driven, but I think we really have tried to remove our own sort of personal opinions and emotions from it and say, well, let's look at the data. And if the data aren't super clear, let's talk to some users. And if that's still not clear, can we do a test of some kind? Can we A-B test idea one and idea two? 
And so I do think that kind of approach where you didn't overbuild, but you would build a, a small version and test it and then see has been a way that has helped us to be successful without sort of going too far down a path that isn't going to bear any fruit. Do you have any examples of where you would have done that? Yeah. I mean, one of the examples that we had fairly recently, actually, we we wondered whether or not people might be willing to pay for uh, more in-person personalized advice. And so we're like, okay, well, how could we test this? And so we sent out an email to a subset of users a, like offering this, uh, not paid, but just sort of free. Because we wanted to see like what percentage of people would actually even do it if it were free. If people aren't willing to do it when it's free, then uh, it's unlikely they're going to do it if they needed to pay. So that was fairly easy for us to do. It was, you know, just send out and draft an email, send it out. And then, you know, we scheduled some slots and it was literally me and, you know, another team member who were going to offer to do these phone calls. And so um, we did them and then we asked a bunch of feedback uh, afterwards, a couple of survey questions just to find out, A, was this helpful? B, how often would you do it? And C, you know, would you consider paying for it? And what we found is people found them super helpful. The phone calls, which we'd scheduled like 15 to 20 minutes for each of them, I think on average were like four minutes long. And then people were like, no, I think that's good. I don't think I need another call, maybe one again next year. And so we realized that like there wasn't a ton of unmet need that people felt like they needed to talk to a real person to, to answer. Or it was things that like we really didn't feel like we would have been equipped to do. It was you know, much more personalized financial planning advice that uh, we, we wouldn't be able to do over a short period of time. So that, I mean, that's a small example of yeah. something that could have been like a bigger thing. And we just sort of tested it really low key. Right. Okay. So, so the testing model has been key for you guys yeah. for sure. You've talked in the past about diversity and how you carefully considered the way that you grew your own team. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So from the very beginning, our CEO, Andrew, wanted to build a diverse team. And that was important for him as he chose the board and as he chose the co-founding team. And it was important to all of us. And I think we just assumed it would happen, especially me. I felt like I'm a woman. I'm a person of color. I'm, you know, I'm not going to be biased in my hiring decisions. And so I thought it would happen more naturally than it did. I think in the early days, we made a bunch of mistakes, uh, which uh, it was super helpful for me to speak to other founders, to talk to other people who had been successful in building more diverse companies in order to learn from them. And so I think what I realized is that if women weren't applying to work at Borowell, that wasn't their fault. That was our fault. We were doing something that made it not attractive to them to apply. Um, so like one very concrete example is we look very hard at our job descriptions. And there's been a lot of research that shows that women are less likely to apply for a job if they don't meet all of the job requirements, whereas men are much more likely to apply for a job. They would only have to sort of meet 60% of the job requirements in order to submit an application, whereas for women... A lot of times they aren't going to submit an application unless they meet 100% of the job requirements, which I get because we're calling it a requirement. So <laughs> if I don't have it, then why would I waste my time and yours by applying? 100%. Yeah. So, I mean, a very simple thing that we did was we looked very hard at all of our job requirements. And we said, is this actually a requirement or is this a nice to have? Or is this like not even a nice to have? And so I think we, we pared down our job requirements to what was actually a requirement. And one of the other things that we did was a lot of times a requirement would have been we would have soft skills as a requirement. We weren't going to hire someone who couldn't work well with a team. There was no way we we're going to hire someone who, you know, w wouldn't collaborate well. And so I think that we added some of those things in, again, to emphasize that 
uh, a, I think it showed us something about our culture, but then I think also to build confidence of people who may have felt like technically they didn't have the skills for whatever reason, but you know, it, it wasn't always uh, that we needed a specific technical skill that someone had done before in order to be successful at the job. Mm-hmm. So how has that approach changed your, your corporate culture? Yeah, I think it has changed it a lot. I mean, the other person I give a lot of credit to is our VP talent, Larissa Holmes. And she was brought on relatively early and has been very instrumental in helping us be thoughtful about what it means to build not only a diverse team, but one that has an inclusive culture where people really feel like they can be themselves and where they feel like they belong. Mm -hmm. So I think that's also important to emphasize is that um, there's a strong business case for diversity, but that you're not going to be able to actually achieve those better business results if you don't have an inclusive environment that takes advantage of the diversity that uh, that exists. But today we're very proud of the culture that we've built and obviously there's still more work to do. I don't think that things are ever perfect. But from a demographic point of view, more than 50% of our team today identify as um, either being female or uh, non-binary. And uh, in some cases, I think we need to be hiring more men from like a gender perspective in order to have a, a more balanced team. But I think uh, we're proud of the work that we've done so far, and we recognize we have more to do. That's fantastic. So what has surprised you most about the process of scaling your business, of growing your business, of growing Borowell? I guess personally, one of the things that has surprised me about growing Borowell is how much uh, my role has changed over time. And I think that I recognize that that would happen, but I think the frequency and the amount that uh, it's changed is a bit surprising. So that's just more from like a personal perspective. And I think for any founder or um, you know management team member of a, a fast-growing startup, that's a reality that... I think you have to constantly be looking at what it is that you're doing and uh, examining whether or not the things that were the best things for you to do last month may not be the best things for you to do this month. And How have so, things changed for you? Yeah. I mean, in the early days, I think you really are like doing everything, right? And then uh, you move to a point where you can hire one person to take over marketing, one person to take over you know, operations, but then I'm still their assistant, right? So I still need to know how to do everything even if I'm not doing everything. And then once you have small teams, it's exciting because uh, then, you know, I don't need to be involved as much in the day to day. And I think in the early days, like I wanted to be a good manager. And then I realized that I needed to help my uh, the people on my team be good managers of their team. So I do think there's an evolution for sure. I think the other thing that people talk a lot about, which has definitely been true, is I think uh, the role of communicating and communicating vision becomes like much more important as a, as a team gets bigger. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's a lot more sort of communicating uh, rather than sort of maybe executing. How do you feel now when you step back and look at Borowell and what you've built? It's a good question. I feel like founders don't do that w- enough. You know, you're, you're still caught up in the problems of the day to day and realize there's so much more to do. And I do think it's uh, it's it's good to look back once in a while, but I would say that most of my energy is always looking forward and being excited about what the future has to hold. But since you're asking, I am proud of of what we've done. And I think um, two things in particular come to mind. One is the impact on consumers. The fact that we do have over a million consumers who've benefited from Borowell. And a lot would say that we are a real trusted advisor to them and that you know they trust the recommendations that we give them. So that's a real responsibility. 
And I think secondly, what we've talked about before in terms of the team and the culture that we've built is a lot of people would say that Borwell is one of the best places that they've worked, that they've learned so much and there's real friendships that have been grown there. And so I think having had some some part in building a company where there's, a, you know, it's a great place to work. People like to come in, they feel like they're doing important work and they're really learning and growing and developing is, is gratifying as well. So if you were going to give an, an, a budding entrepreneur one piece of advice around scaling, around growing your business, what would it be? One piece of advice I think that might be helpful is not to be scared to give things away. And I think that when you've been an integral part of something, it is hard sometimes to give it up. But I do think that it is important to continue to scale and grow yourself as your company scales and grows. And a lot of times that means that the job that you did, maybe 100% of your time was spent doing a number of things last year. And, and this year, you're doing 0% of that and your job has completely changed. And I do think you have to be able to embrace that and continue to learn and grow and develop those skills that are needed at that next level in order for you to still be doing the most important work. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that's been my experience for sure. Did you learn the hard way by not letting go? I feel like for the most part, I've been pretty good at letting go. I think it definitely helps to hire people who are better than me at doing the job. So I think the other thing that is helpful about my background is some people come into this as like a product person. And so it's like hard for them to give a product or they come in as like the technology person. It's hard for them to give it up because I had no real background in anything that I've done. I think it was maybe easier for me to give it up. But um, yeah, I, I don't. I, I mean, maybe I'm not the best person to ask, but I feel like I haven't had as hard a time giving different things up. And also because I think there's always been more uh, more things to do and things that I was excited about doing. Mm, sounds like a lot of learning in any event. Gosh. It is. It is. I think that's the thing that's exciting about it. That's like one of our cultural values is that uh, we want to hire people. We need to hire people who love learning because you're not always going to be right. And so the thing that makes being wrong okay is learning out of it. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think if you love learning, then a startup or a scale-up is a great place to be. That's fantastic advice. Thank you so much, Eva. Thank you so much for having me. In Ventures' early days, the heavy lifting generally falls to the founder and his or her core team. But when your company starts growing, your approach to running things has to as well. That is especially critical if you run a sales organization, especially if, as the founder, you've always been the face of it. For more on what founders need to know about building a scalable sales process, I'm joined by Jim Hamilton. Jim is a popular lecturer at Smith School of Business, where he is a distinguished faculty fellow of sales management. He also has been forming and growing startup companies for more than 20 years. Hello, Jim. How are you, Meredith? Thanks for having me here today. So, Jim, let me, let me get right to the key question. What do founders need to know about building a scalable sales process? Well, let's start with sales process first. And one of the things founders learn very early is they have to win, be in regular contact with their customers. And as they regularly interact with them, what they find is they learn about their buying process. So the customer's buying process is what drives everything. The sooner you understand that, the sooner you learn it, the more it's going to drive the processes you execute as a sales organization. And so you need to be in alignment is what we talk about. We talk about being in alignment with buying process. And once that is set, you have your playbook. Essentially what you need to do, both through communications, interactions, advice and guidance, 
to enable your customers to execute their buying process. Now, the second part, which is the far more challenging part, which is scaling that. I mean, if you're an organization that's trying to double or triple or potentially even 10 times your business, the issues you face is that you need to continue that kind of growth, adding that many more customers, while also not allowing your costs to go at the same pace. Ultimately, you want costs to actually go in the other direction. And so you really need to have data that you gleaned through those early days that can help you determine what's going to be the value of a customer over time. And so what kind of revenue stream and contribution can they bring relative to what it costs you both to acquire them at the outset and what it costs to service them on an ongoing basis. And so as you figure out those kind of unit economics, they need to be moving in a direction where the revenue is driving up while you're able to drive down those unit costs over time. So you need to figure that out. Oftentimes you only figure that out if you've been fighting it out in the trenches while you were founding and starting the company. Yikes. That sounds that's a lot to consider. How does this differ if you're talking about a, a business to business company, a B2B or a business to consumer, so B2C? Well, if we think about those businesses, a direct to consumer business, if you think about trying to scale a business that sells direct to consumers, say an online site that's selling a product or service to individuals. Well, you're often talking into the potentially hundreds of thousands or even millions in that particular case. And what you try to do is design a model that allows them to self-service themselves. So that would typically involve some means by which you drive traffic, often through various types of marketing communications. And then you need to have a location, a website or otherwise, that allows them to interact with you very efficiently and ultimately pay and buy. So oftentimes the issues there in scalability are about the marketing communication aspect of driving traffic and then the user interface and the ability of your website to perform fast enough that people don't get frustrated and ultimately execute the buy process. So it's not really about salespeople per se in those kinds of businesses. But when you talk about scaling where you're selling to businesses – And sometimes selling to businesses could be as simple as selling to consumers if it's routine, non-strategic types of purchases. But where the purchases are a little bit – have greater risk, more strategic, involve oftentimes more people, and the organization that's buying is going to take more time, then the process is more complex. And that's where you typically need a sales force. Now the challenge in trying to scale a sales force there is similar similar to what we just talked about in the earlier question. Okay. So when you're looking for build, you're building that sales force, you're a young company, you're ready to go to the next level. What are you looking for in that sales leader? Yeah, these are these are very challenging roles. Typically, uh, when we see founders who need to transition to starting to run the business as a whole and step away from being the chief salesperson, and you want to think about bringing on someone who can take on that role. And, You know, the logical answer is find someone with experience at growing a startup from nothing to 10 times it or getting it to its first 50 or 100 million. The sad thing is there's just not that many people out there who can do that. And so we often see companies look to larger organizations and try to attract senior sales leaders from large organizations that would then take on this responsibility. And you need to be careful about that as well. Because the skill sets you're looking for are that really, really subtle mix of someone who can be very hands-on in both designing and executing a sales process, but also have the skills to be able to uh, recruit, 
and manage people as you start to layer on and add people in to the organization. And, you know, those are difficult things. Yeah, indeed. That's a lot of a lot of things, a lot of factors in one person. And then likewise, what do you want to avoid in a person that you're hiring? Like, what do you want to? Well, I mean, you know, the, the tenor of a sales leader uh, has been debated for a long time, and it's difficult for people to survive because the performance expectations in fast-growing companies are very high. Um, and so success is, you know, you're constantly reaching up. So you certainly need someone who has the capability to uh, stick through the iterations that happen in new product and new product changes because that can be very frustrating. You need someone who's able to actually manage people who are having to live through that as salespeople. And so when you think about this kind of person, you have to avoid the kind of person who really is thinking about sales in the old sort of traditional way, which is execute a sales process, drive quota, make a lot of money. You need someone who really has a bit of a vision for the longer term and is prepared both to hit these aggressive targets, but also lay a nice foundation for the next few years. And that's very difficult to find. Hmm. Thanks. So then what's the warning sign when your existing sales process or team is not up to the challenge? See, that's the beautiful part of sales because data drives so much. And uh, sales organizations today... Uh, when they set up a sales process, are going to have a technological infrastructure to support that so that information is available to individual performers but also to sales leadership. And so without a doubt, you're going to know very quickly. And the warning signs are certainly if uh, the set quote is and hit, that's usually a pretty simple symptom you look for to then determine, okay, what's actually going on here? And you'd sort of work backward from there. Uh, When you start to see customers churn or leave earlier than you'd anticipated that would happen, that usually is a red flag that you want to quickly understand the reasons why. So you'll spend a lot of time interacting with people who decide to leave and to try to prevent that, what we might call churn. Um, So those are a couple of the key ones you look for. Another could be a salesperson uh, turnover as well. Because sometimes what happens in these situations is you're asking a lot of individual performers, and if the expectations aren't aligned with uh, the realism of what they can achieve, you get people who are working hard, doing really well, but not hitting their numbers. And so it's a real challenge to Mm -hmm. manage people in that circumstance. Yeah, yeah. And then also, I mean, how do you match the size of your sales force with the scope of your business? How do you know how to do that when you're scaling? Uh, I know some people think there's a science to that, and and sadly it isn't. Um, One of the key things in making sure you right-size your sales force is be highly iterative in the process and err a little bit on the side of overstaffing um, so that when things like uh, employee or salesperson churn happens, you're not put in a spot where that could disrupt uh, achieving your goals. And so it, it's challenging. There's no magic to it. Yeah, because, I mean, you overstaff, and then you've got all these people sitting around. Well, that's the balance. There's a, a variations on overstaffing, or degrees, I should say. Um, and having an awareness of, from experience about what you can expect when the pressure hits, and you do things like shift product focus, or products are delayed, and you need to adapt in the marketplace in real time, 
then your experience will tell you that you'll probably lose a certain percentage. And so that experience comes to bear where you've overstaffed, in quotes, to the right amount. Right. So this is the problem, of course, is like a new startup doesn't have experience. So I guess that's the inherent challenge. Well, when you think about that founder making that transition to trying to scale a business, you know, those are very real risks. And so it's oftentimes, um, well, it's oftentimes where you want to overstaff. The issue is whether you can even do it. Um, and some people uh, have also argued, just to bring the, the flip to this, is that it's better to have fewer and only add when the pressure is great. And so there's two views on how to approach the marketplace with this, depending upon you as a leader. Because when you're understaffed, you're going to have a lot more people uh, working a lot more hours, and that could be a risk to the health of the organization. Oh, interesting. Now, you touched on this briefly, but, you know, technology has really disrupted the sales management process and automation. All these things are making a big difference in the way people operate. Um, Is there anything, I mean, imagine you're leading a firm that's still pretty small. Are there technologies or things that really excite you or that you think are are really going to change things for people who are scaling sales businesses now? Yeah, I mean, think any organization today is going to have some kind of customer relationship management system, almost a platform technology that they use for uh, managing all of the interactions with prospects and customers and accounts. But there's a number of organizations, one Canadian company in particular called Nudge.ai, is doing some really interesting things around being able to track the status of a relationship or the depth of a relationship. Because oftentimes, salespeople make assumptions about how individual members of a buying team may or may not react, and they don't really have a sense for the extent of that relationship. And so what Nudge is doing is it's using uh, artificial intelligence uh, and its deep experience in marketing automation to determine and help uh, organizations, sales individuals and leaders see what the true status of a relationship is in a prospect. You could imagine trying to sell enterprise software to a large organization. There might be 20 or 30 people involved. And you need to know the extent of your relationship as an organization with those 20 or 30 people. Nudge is doing a great job of helping you see what that looks like to identify potential risk points and then take action to insulate against them. And so it's very pioneering work. um, But what's really exciting about it, it's about that human-to-human interaction. And so we're leveraging AI to make better people relationships and, and help sales organizations achieve their outcomes, which ultimately is to help other organizations achieve their outcomes. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and Jim, you yourself have had a lot of experience starting companies. I'm going to ask you as a final question, any, any advice that you would share about sales in a new firm environment? Yeah, I mean, the advice I'd have for a founder who doesn't have a background in sales is that um, there's very specific processes and skills that you need to know when you're trying to engage organizations to consider what you offer. And those skills are difficult to learn on the fly. And so often my advice is to take some time early in the development of your firm, if you're one of those people, to engage with sales advisors and understand what these skills are. Because with just a little bit of work, you can get your head around what those processes look like and develop some of the competencies. Something as simple as knowing how to listen well and know when to ask a question first continuing to talk. So there's very simple things. Almost some people might call them little hacks that can make you much more effective early in the development of your company. And then as you evolve, the heavy lifting of designing full sales processes simply comes down to listening to what the customer tells you about how they buy 
and then aligning in that regard. So I'd tell them to make sure they take a little time on that front. It'll save them a lot of headaches down the road. Mm, That's good advice. Uh, Well, thanks, Jim. Oh, my pleasure, Meredith. Thanks for having me in today. And now it's time for an episodic feature we call Show Me the Evidence with Alan Morantz, editor of Smith Business Insight. The transition from startup to scale-up may be among the most hair-raising that an entrepreneur must navigate. You've just mastered driving the family sedan. Now you're being handed the keys to the Learjet. As a startup, you've worked out the kinks in your new product or service. You've validated the business model with your target audience and laid down your lines of distribution. You've surrounded yourself with people who have strong business and market knowledge. People who can take on multiple roles. It's fast-moving, it's fluid, it's management by the seat of your pants. To scale up, you need to slow down. By that I mean you'll want to put in place the processes and systems and management hierarchy that will allow you to deliver your offering to a growing audience, day in and day out. For that, you need to assemble an entrepreneurial team with much more structure, a team with functional specialists in marketing or sales or operations, you know, people who won't be asked to also replace the toner in the photocopier. When you reach that critical scale-up stage, and experts say it often hits at 5 million in sales and 30 employees, what does the management evidence say about what makes great entrepreneurial teams tick? Considering how much research has been conducted on team performance, less than you think. Take team size. What research has been done on team size and new venture performance is equivocal. Some suggest larger teams lead to better performance due to their ability to handle complex situations. Others suggest smaller teams boost performance due to their ability to integrate different outlooks. Same with diversity. In the corporate world, at least, it's generally thought that diverse teams with their wide range of skills and perspectives outperform less diverse teams. Indeed, studies have identified a positive relationship between the diversity in the functional backgrounds of venture teams and new venture performance. But other studies have found no such relationship or even a negative one. There's the argument that diverse entrepreneurial teams can actually sputter because of the need to spend so much time and energy diffusing emotional conflicts and trying to reach consensus. It's a similar story with the educational diversity of new venture teams and firm performance. No clear answer. How about gender diversity? This one is tricky. It's been shown that female entrepreneurs identify fewer market opportunities than their male counterparts. You might conclude that any increased gender diversity of new venture teams may have a neutral or even a negative effect on identifying market opportunities. That's an important consideration during the scaling up stage. But not so fast. A study of gender-diverse venture teams in the most entrepreneurial, vibrant region in China tells a more promising story. It found that the gender diversity of an entrepreneurial team is positively associated with the venture's innovation performance. What's the connection? It seems that having women on male-dominated entrepreneurial teams allows all team members greater freedom to provide unique insights into the key tasks that new venture teams have to deal with. But there's another way of looking at new venture teams besides skill, size, or diversity. If you're a founder, 
What sort of top management team would help you make better decisions when the pressure is really on? Here's a common scenario. You're at a critical point in your young firm's development. Your key product is faltering in the market. Your investors advise you to cut bait and pivot to another product or business model. But you just can't bear to turn your back on years of development and seed money. Instead, you decide to double down. This psychological jujitsu is known as the escalation of commitment. That's better known as throwing good money after bad. When you feel the need to justify your original decision, hope springs eternal. According to new research, this escalation of commitment in an entrepreneurial setting is partly fed by group emotions and social pressures. In particular, researchers found that the level of hope among a new venture's team members, more than their fear of financial loss, determined whether they escalated their commitment and kept investing in a faltering venture rather than calling it quits. Now, part of this may be explained by the fact that entrepreneurial teams often have very strong bonds of friendship. Team members have been through a lot together. They don't want the adventure to end. As a result, they may be blind to the business reality that the venture has to wind down or change drastically. The takeaway here is that emotions are a critical but underappreciated aspect of new venture management and decision making, particularly when they reach critical forks in the road, and scaling is certainly one of them. Entrepreneurs need to understand and harness their team members' emotions. Otherwise, those emotions could lead them down the garden path of ruin. We'll add links to the research in the show notes. I'm Alan Morantz, editor of Smith Business Insight, and I've just shown you the evidence. And that's the show. Next episode, we'll explore the struggle of sustaining your business, including the concept of lean innovation and how it can help. I hope you'll join us. Until then, I'm Meredith Dalt at the Smith School of Business at Queen's University. Thanks for listening. <laughs>